Well, the scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, we've been going through a series of sermons on Ecclesiastes. Today we're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. It's the reading of God's word. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched from my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water the water of forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in a word of of prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us here uh, during this time. And it's been so long since we've gathered together and and worship in person. Thank you for our friends on family online, that you can gather us through technology online as well. But more than anything else, Lord, we hunger not just for each other, but for you and to hear your word, to hear your wisdom, your truth. So speak to us this morning. Speak to us. Uh, open up our heart to hear you speaking to us through your servant. Give me faithfulness to your word, to your truth. Help us all together to see the beauty of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, I want to, to welcome you all. Thanks for some of you making it out here to inner city, it is a it's a good thing for us to be together. Thanks again for people online joining us, and we are kind of just testing out this space to see how it is. So thank you for people who made this work, as we consider to ask God for wisdom and how to get together safely during this period. Well, if you caught us, um, if you haven't caught us on the live stream, we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is all about exploring the meaning of life. What's the what's the purpose of life? Uh, one way I like to explain it is, why do you get up in the morning when your alarm clock rings? Some of you might not, but why do you, if you do, get up when your alarm rings? Why do you get up in the morning? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you started? What is your why? What is your why to life? Uh, everything, you know, in the realm of sports, there is a goal. In football, it's simply to have more points than the other team as time expires. 
So you can win a game 3-0. You can win a game 49-48. to It doesn't matter. All that matters is you have more points than your opponents when the clock hits zero. That's the goal. Now you need a strategy. But we we need to ask that about all of life. What's the goal of life? What's the whole purpose of life? Because it's much bigger than a game. What's the purpose? And then we need a strategy of how to get there. The book of Ecclesiastes explores the meaning of life through the lens of man. If this world is all there is, what's the purpose? What's the meaning? One of the main figures in the, the book of Ecclesiastes is the professor. In the Hebrew, his name is Kohelet. Uh, it literally means one who gathers people. And he's dropping knowledge. And he wants to explore life if this is all there is. He's exploring different whys. He's trying each of them out. And today he's looking at this idea of pleasure. For many people, the purpose of life is a life of constant pleasure, experiences, travel, leisure, sensation, experiencing life to the fullest. And he looks at that perspective as a why, as a meaning of life, and explores it. You know, when it comes to the Bible, God is for our pleasure. He wants us to have the greatest joys in life. God is a God of joy, and he wants us to experience the deepest joys. And here in Ecclesiastes, we want to look at there are two ways to that joy. There are two different routes. If pleasure is your destination, there are two different routes to it. We're going to look at two different routes to pleasure in Ecclesiastes. One is cheap thrills, and the other is eternal delights. We're going to contrast those two ideas, those two routes to pleasure, cheap thrills, eternal delights. The first perspective is this idea of of these thrills, these pleasures here on this earth. The professor, he's looking at life under the sun, and that's code. It's a little code word under the sun for life without God. Most of almost the entire Bible is life over the heavens from God's perspective. God is giving us his perspective and giving that to us. But Ecclesiastes is the only book from an alternate perspective. It's life under the sun. If this world is all that we have, it's exploring that. What is life about then? The professor is exploring the meaning of life, and he is, here in chapter 2, is using the persona of King Solomon. King Solomon was the wealthiest person who ever lived in the Old Testament. Uh, His life, in one sense, was the pursuit of pleasure. And the professor is using the persona of King Solomon to explore that vantage point. This is what he says in verse 1 and 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But, but, But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? The professor is doing a series of experiments. And the first experiment is he wants to to enjoy every possible thing in this life, in this world, to experience it, to indulge all of his senses. You can't do anything about your past. The future is uncertain. It's uncertain. We don't know what is happening in the future. So one perspective is this is all we have. Let's, let's live to the fullest and experience all that there is, all that we can experience in this life. And temptation is just to feel good now. 
So he's going to indulge all of his senses. He starts, interestingly enough, in verse 2, he starts with laughter. Starts with laughter. Some people say laughter is the best medicine. Sometimes nothing feels better than to laugh. Uh, we seek out laughter all the time. You might watch stand-up comedy. Uh, you might watch clips on YouTube. Share them with your friends, your family. You might watch comedies on Netflix. And we seek out laughter. But the professor calls laughter madness. Why does he say that? He says it's madness. What is madness? One way to explain madness is madness is a break from reality. Madness is a break from reality. If you saw someone who just lost their mother and they start laughing, you would say that that's madness. No, they should be weeping instead of laughing. That's madness to respond like that. You know, things are really bleak in our world right now. There are people literally dying. There's uncertainty. There's death. There's division. There's despair. And it's madness if the way that we deal with it is by turning that off, pretending it doesn't exist, and laughing. It's a form of denial. It's a form of escapism. Uh, laughing, I'm going to talk about this, and is a good thing. We should laugh. It, it is a good thing to laugh. I'm not saying we should not laugh. But when we use laughter as a form to escape the pain, there's, a, there's, there's problems with that. That's not healthy. When we use laughter to mask our own pain and not deal with it, it's not a healthy thing. We're escaping reality. At some point, we need to face life. At some point, the laughter needs to stop. This is a moment in our, in our time, I think, as a country, as a city, as a culture, where we need to lament. We need to experience and understand pain. We need, be, we need to be able to weep. But if we turn all that off and our first instinct is simply to escape and to laugh, it's a form of denial. It's a form of unhealth. So the professor keeps looking. Let's keep on looking for other forms of pleasure. So in verse 3, he says this, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Professor explores other pleasures. Now he goes to wine. He goes to strong drink. He says he uses wine to cheer him. For some of us, there's nothing better than a nice glass of wine and a cold beer, cider at the end of the evening, a way to relax. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to repeat these kind of caveats. There's nothing wrong with that. But wine, heavy drinking can be also forms of escape. It can be ways that we celebrate, which is healthy, but it also can be ways we medicate. You know, a lot of things have spiked during COVID. One of the things that have spiked during COVID is drinking. Uh, one study says it's increased 14%. Amongst women, heavy drinking has increased 41% amongst women. Drinking has spiked. Sometimes we look to alcohol when we feel anxious as a form of medication. Proverbs 21, 20 verse 1 says this. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs says wine is a mocker. Some people, when they have too much to drink, they act a fool. You know, they lose their sense, their sensibility. It 
and they end up being mocked. It says strong drink is a brawler. Notice he says strong drink. Strong drink is a brawler. It's like an MMA fighter. It's going to take you down. Uh, the more that you indulge in it, the more you medicate by drinking, the more unhinged we can get. For every great night of drinking, there's going to be a hangover. There are going to be repercussions. The high will never last. And we, not just with alcohol, but any drug, legal or illegal, we're always going to be chasing that moment, that high. It's never going to last. It can grow into a cycle of dependence that we call addiction. There's a law of diminishing returns. How many lives have been lost through alcoholism, through addiction in our country, in our culture right now? It's a cycle. The professor calls wine folly. Again, not that we can have a good drink. I'll talk about that later. But that as a way to deal with life is folly. That as a center of your life is folly. So the professor moves on. He says in verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which... To water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. And had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. More than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Here the professor takes on the persona of King Solomon. Who was known for his opulence. For his great wealth. He built multiple estates. He planted vineyards. He built gardens and parks. He had custom made aqueducts that that guarded, guarded, watered his vineyards, his forests, his gardens. You know, sometimes I check out Zillow. I don't know if you do this. And check out multi-million dollar estates in the Hollywood Hills and in Malibu. And it's stunning. You know, some of these estates, uh, they have infinity pools, amazing views of the city. Uh, they have wine cellars. Everything is custom made the person building this house. Um, I watched a video of LeBron James, and he was showing this video of his daughter's playhouse in his backyard. And his daughter's playhouse was the size of an actual house. You know, like you can, you can live there. Most people can live in his daughter's playhouse. That's how big his, his house was. These, these houses are amazing. They're beautiful. They're custom made. King Solomon... His, he had multiple estates. King Solomon didn't just have a wine cellar. He had vineyards. He had forests. He would have what we would have today in our country, uh, national monuments, uh, gardens, estates, forests. They were in his backyard. They belonged to him. He had multiple estates that were built specifically for him. The language in Ecclesiastes 2 mirrors Genesis 1 and 2. The trees, the fruits, the gardens, the greenery, it all echoes Genesis 1 and 2 with one exception. This man is trying to make a garden of Eden, a mini garden of Eden, except with instead of God at the center, he's in the center. At the Garden of Eden, there are certain things off limits, but here in this garden, nothing's off limits. It's all his. It's all for him. Every sense he can indulge. It says in verse 8, I also gathered myself silver and gold 
and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to the delight of the sons of man. Verse 8, he gathers resources, silver and gold, treasures from other kings. He acquires entertainment in the form of singers. He acquires a harem of women. In 1 Kings 11, we, we see the raw numbers. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1,000 women. In verse 10, it says, he says, anything my eyes wanted, I got. Anything he saw, he had. Anything he wanted, he got. Any pleasure, any experience, sex, the desire for, for food, for indulgence, any of his senses, anything he felt or saw belonged to him. The philosophy that King Solomon has in Ecclesiastes 2 is what we would call today consumerism. Consumerism is the idea that happiness comes from getting more and getting better. I need more, I need better. And to some extent, we all buy into some of that worldview, myself included. Sometimes I do that when I browse Amazon. Or I'm not Best Buy. I think man, if I just got this thing, this product, it'll make my life so much better. My life would be so much easier. So much, I would I would fill these gaps in my life. I was talking to my next door neighbor, just talking to him outside when a UPS truck pulled up, and he's like, "Oh, I know that's for me." He says, "My wife during the pandemic, she was got very depressed, and she's she's been saying, I need retail therapy." She says, that's her, that's her form of getting through. She wants to shop online. It's going to hit some spot for her. It's going to give her some kind of therapy. Uh, and that's a lot of life. We, we look out and we think, if I just had this or that, that product, if I indulge these senses, my life would be richer, more meaningful. But what's the cost of consumerism? What's the cost of living for that? Because it doesn't seem like there's many consequences to indulging your senses, to getting what you want, to shopping, experiencing sex, indulging all of that with no limits. What's the cost of that? Well, there's, there is a lot of cost. Notice in verse 7 what he says. Uh, well, in verse 8, he talks about the idea that he acquired all of these things through other nations, the gold of other nations. In other words, through war, through invasion, through taking it from other countries. We also know that King Solomon heavily taxed his own people. He had all this opulence and wealth, but somebody had to pay for it. And who's paying for it? Other countries, his own people. He had multiple estates and all of these things, but he got it from taking it, took it. There's a human cost involved as well. It says in verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. The professor looks at King Solomon's life and how he bought slaves. He specifically mentioned he had slaves born in my house. Why does he mention that? It's very purposeful. These are slaves who... Their whole life they were slaves. Usually, especially in the Old Testament, you can only sell yourself into slavery for a period of time. And there would be a release, a year of jubilee, when you can go free, but not here. These were lifelong slaves. They were never released. 
It's a commentary. When your focus is on yourself and your pleasure, you begin to use people. You begin to exploit people. If it's all about me, it's all about my senses and my experiences, it often leads to exploitation. You exist for my pleasure. The more we want things, the more we want them cheaper, the more likely it is that we exploit people for our work, to get products, to make it cheaper. There's a likelihood of exploitation. The more that I become the center, I begin to see people as objects to be used for me. It's about me, my fulfillment. Think about pornography. When you think about pornography, it's often seen as a victimless pursuit. But many of the women who are on camera have been exploited, not all of them. Some have been exploited. And for the rest of their life, they have these image of them chasing them their whole life. Many of them have not been paid for all the things that they have done. It's a form of exploitation. And we often disregard that because it's about my pleasure, what I feel in this moment. There's a human cost to consumption. When life becomes about me, can be dehumanizing. But ultimately, where does that leave King Solomon? Even though there are all these costs, it might be worth it if he feels like he's fulfilled. But what does he say at the end of it? It says this in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, man, I have worked hard to get all these pleasures for myself, built all of these estates, had all of these people. I've lined them all up and I, I worked hard for these pleasures. But he says at the end of it, I feel empty. I feel I feel like it's like chasing the wind. I can't ever get there. I'm trying to get that high, get that hit, get that pleasure. And I'm always chasing it. It's like chasing the wind. I'm never going to finally get there. And he says there's a great cost to living like that. But even if you get it, it's empty. Greg Easterbrook wrote a book called The Progress Paradox. He says today we have more of almost everything today that people in all, all, all other ages have had in the past. But we have more of it except happiness. He says we have more than we ever need or want, but what we don't have is happiness. He says, in fact, the more we have, the unhappier we are because we will never be be able to get all the new things we, we want. He says, especially when you look on social media and you look at everything else you can't have or other people have, it makes us even unhappier. And he says we live in an age of melancholy. We live in an age of depression, of sadness. We have everything we, we should want, but we're still unhappy. It's the paradox he calls the progress paradox. The professor looks at all that the world has to offer. He says that it's, there's an emptiness to all of it. And this, this, this book of Ecclesiastes, it ultimately leads us to, to a, a true source of our joy. And this is the second and last point. Eternal delights. Ecclesiastes, it takes us to the end of ourselves. The professor is exploring life 
and he's showing the emptiness of it. And he wants to lead us to a higher joy, a deeper pleasure. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he says in Mere Christianity that every desire you have has a fulfillment. So if you're hungry, it's because there's food. If you uh, are lonely, there's something called friendship or companionship. Everything, every desire you have has a corollary, has a fulfillment. But he asked the question, what if you have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy? What if you want something, you tried everything in this world, and none of that satisfies you? Then what? And he says the only explanation is we were made for another world. We weren't made for this world. We have these desires that nothing in this world could possibly fulfill. And he says the reason for it is that we were made for another world. We were were made to experience a great delight that's not of this world. He says every earthly pleasures are appetizers. They are appetizers preparing us for the real thing. So on the one hand, we don't deny them. On the other hand, we don't deify them. On the one hand, we don't say, let's, let's just go away in a monastery and not indulge in anything. He says, not like that. But on the other hand, we don't say that's the end and be all of everything. Because that will leave you empty as well. The temptation is to take the, the desires, the pleasures of this world. They're signs, not the substance. They're signs, not the sub- substance. They're temp- they're t- the temptation is to take the signs as a thing itself, as the ultimate thing. And we, de- we need to overcome that. We need to see what it's really all about. And how do we see that? Ultimately, in the life of Jesus... You know, before Jesus began began his ministry in Matthew, in Matthew 4, the devil takes Jesus up to the highest place and he's allowed to see all of the kingdoms. And the devil says to Jesus, Jesus, I will make you the king. You can have all of this, all of the, you could be the king and experience all, all of this will belong to you. Not just one nation, all the nations. You can indulge all your senses forever there's one caveat bow down and worship me you can have it all what does jesus say jesus doesn't hesitate he doesn't think about it he says to Satan, be gone and he says that he will only worship the lord god you know great jesus forsook the pleasures of this world because he, he took great delight in you you were his delight He wanted to rescue humanity, the delight of rescuing his people. The delight of life with his father was greater than any temporary joys of this earth. All throughout his ministry, Jesus says, we have to make choices. So in Matthew 4.26, he says, For what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says, what if you even had it all? If you had it all, would it be worth it if you forfeited your soul, your eternal soul? Is it worth it? It doesn't mean the Christian life is all about forsaking our pleasures. That's not what I'm talking about, but it's about finding our greatest delight in our Lord. Uh, Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
There's no greater joy than knowing the God of the universe. There's no greater thrill than fellowship with the Father. There's no greater peace in knowing your sins are forgiven. You're loved by an almighty God. You're a child of the King. There's no greater hope than knowing that heaven is your home. You know that joy. Well, this morning, God invites you to taste and see that he is good. To experience the goodness, the joy of knowing God the Father. When you see Jesus on the cross, we see him dying for you, for your sins. You know, every other thing in this life will use you. The places that you work for, the even people, they will often use you and exploit you. But only the God of the, of the universe will love you like he has loved you in Jesus. See him dying for you. See his love. And when you do that, when you understand the love of God and the, the joy of God, then we can experience pleasures in this life in a different way. The pleasures of this life then are simply, we now see them as gifts from God the Father. And we see them as gifts that lead us to him, that lead us to him. We can appreciate, we can laugh together. We can laugh at ourselves. We can laugh knowing that one day we're going to laugh with God. One, one day we're going to have delight in him. We can drink great wine in celebration. And we can use alcohol not to forget but to remember. You know, in the Bible, uh, Jesus famously turns water into wine, but also he talks about on the cross that he will not drink the wine until he comes into his kingdom. Wine is remembering that one day we're going to drink wine with God and celebrate in a great banquet. So we use wine in moderation. And when we do it, when we celebrate it, it's to remember the true banquet to come. We're looking forward. Christians of all people should celebrate. We enjoy these things, not as the thing, but as echoes, as appetizers. Every joy is an appetizer for the true joy to come. And we, we can celebrate and we can take things as gifts from God. We eat. Whenever we eat a great meal, it's a gift from God. And I am anticipating that greater feast to come. We talk about true joys, but, you know, when you think about it, ultimately we have to choose, though, still, in an ultimate sense. Uh, we talk about cheap thrills and the eternal delights of God. And ultimately, we have to focus on one. We have to focus on one. One has to take the primary place in our life. Some of us are trying to do both. We're trying to live our best life and enjoy everything in this life, and we're also trying to enjoy God. And some of us are trying to do both. You know, but when you, Jesus t- says you can't serve two masters. Imagine having two bosses. You can't please both if they're both demanding. And pursuing pleasure and pursuing God, they're gonna, they're gonna butt heads. It's gonna leave you exhausted. You can't please both. Ultimately, you have to choose. You have to choose. In Hebrews 11, there's a great Hall of Fame passage. One of the keys, key figures in that, Moses. And it says of Moses that he grew up in the palace of the Pharaoh, but this is what it says in verse Six. It says that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
Moses chose not the fleeting pleasures of sin, but the eternal delight of God. This morning God asks you to choose, to prioritize, to seek these deeper joys and pleasures. I want to close with a testimony. It's from a Christian woman who lived in the 18th century. And she would be considered today poor. This is what she says. This is her journal entry. I do not know when I have been happier in my soul than when I had been sitting at work with nothing before me but a candle and a white cloth and hearing no sound but that of my own breath with God in my soul and heaven in my eye. I rejoice in being exactly what I am, a creature capable of loving God and who as long as God lives must be happy. I get up and look a while out the window. I gaze at the moon and the stars, the work of an almighty hand. I think of the grandeur of the universe and then sit down and think myself one of the happiest beings in it. This woman, she doesn't have anything but a candle and a cloth. She's doing what many would consider very menial work, but she says that when she considers the happiness of God, that he delights in her. She looks at the, the stars and the skies and sees God's grandeur. And she says, I am the happiest person on this earth. I don't have much, but I have the love of God. I know him. You know, you have everything in your life right now to be the happiest person in the world. Think about that. You might you might be in marriage that's this it's difficult. You might be at a job that's not fulfilling. But you could be right now the happiest person in the world, just like this woman, the happiest person. You have all the resources you need to have joy right at this moment, even if things don't go right in your life, because you have that eternal God who loves and delights in you. You have the love of a father, and you have the hope of heaven. Would that be your hope, your joy? Through all of this, these uncertain times, would you have the face of God the Father and would you experience his delight and joy, taste and see that he is good? Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning as we gather together. Thank you that you are our God. We have everything we need right now to rejoice. Thank you for your love, which is infinite, which is extraordinary. Father, forgive us for pursuing as the focal point of our life, a life of constant pleasure. And Lord, many of us are weary because we've been left empty by the hollow joys of this world. Help us to pursue that which is truly fulfilling. Help us to taste and see your goodness and your beauty and your worth. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, during this time, we have a time of communion. And what I'm going to ask you right now, for those of you who are with us, is uh, there is a plate here with communion wafers. And I'm going to ask you simply to, to come forward to take of the those wafers, and then we'll all take of it together. So why don't we uh, right now do that?